0: Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the Certified ETF Advisor designation by visiting cetf.org. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street. And show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci.
1: All right, joining me will be Jim Bianco, President and Index Manager at Bianco Research Advisors, and also President of Bianco Research, who, in my opinion produces some of the best investment research and content out there. But not only that, Bianco is now powering the index behind the recently launched Wisdom Tree Bianco Total Return Fund, ticker WTBN. Uh, this is an ETF of ETFs. In other words, WTBN holds other ETFs. And the holdings are determined based on an evaluation of things like duration, and the yield curve, credit quality, volatility. The goal is ultimately to provide some alpha here, even though this is index-based. So we're going to get into the mechanics of how that index is structured and also just hear Jim's views on the current fixed-income markets right now. Should be a, a great conversation. Also joining me this week will be Seth Rosenthal, Chief Investment Officer at Academy Asset Management who is behind the Academy Veteran Impact ETF, ticker vets, V-E-T-Z, which is also a fixed income ETF. This holds primarily mortgage-backed securities that are actually underpinned mostly by VA loans, veteran administration loans. This ETF also has a uh, smaller allocation, to SBA loans, small business loans made to veterans. And Academy has a unique backstory and also some unique investment capabilities, Because they have a geopolitical intelligence group comprised of former admirals, generals, and uh, senior government officials that helps to inform their investment thinking. So we'll get into all of that and, of course, spotlight the VETS ETF. Now, to start this week... I have on the line with me Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify. Uh, Zeno is, of course, our resident technology expert, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence and robotics, which will be our uh, focus this week. So let's chat with Zeno now.
0: Now, we're joined by the experts at Vetify,
1: a new data analytics and thought
0: leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. The cyclicality is kind of being upended by those nearshoring and
2: rearshoring trends that we're seeing in America. We've got the enabling technologies and the most promising applications, all those technologies.
1: Zeno, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Hello. All right. So, uh, look, artificial intelligence was obviously one of the biggest stories in the markets last year. Uh, But as we move forward here into 2024, you you know, I I thought it'd be interesting to hear just your perspective on where you think we are in sort of the hype cycle. Because I I feel like we've moved beyond the initial buzz around uh, chat, GBT and, and some of the other AI tools. And it feels like now the uh, real work is being done behind the scenes. And so, sort of the retail hype has faded a little. And I'm not saying that's, that's good or bad. It just doesn't feel quite as uh, buzzy as early last year. So uh, just just give us a current state of play. <laughs> what are you seeing in AI right now? Yeah,
2: no. So as, as to your point, yes, when ChatGPT came out, which is now feels like ages ago, Sure. It set the bar higher than anyone had ever seen it for what, quote-unquote, artificial intelligence could do at the individual level across different types of, you know, text-based prompts. You know, you obviously have visual 3D and other elements of prompting to to create, you know, that will trickle across other creative elements, but people aren't just talking about it now. People are using it. My niece is using it. People at universities are using it. AI is being used everywhere. Now, it's not that it hasn't already been used and being the, and has been developed at organizations and in universities for product and other services, whether it's digital or physical creation, for many years now, just traditional machine learning and other types of AI. This generative AI is, is a new cycle, if you will. But yeah, you're right. A lot of work is being done behind the scenes. You have organizations that are you know, that are drilling down into all their business processes. I mean, RPA, robotic process automation, not robot, unlike what it sounds like. It's basically just breaking down task elements and workflows. That's already been put into play for almost a decade now. So there are elements of AI that has been around for a long time, um, to be clear. But we're now starting to see – Kind of local edge, you know. This AI is being democratized, and that—that's something you'll see and hear a lot of. It's just this democratization of product services, and intelligence. Um, even this past year, um, you know, just it, it, so far this year at CES and Davos, uh, we're starting to see AI-first products coming through. Davos core topics are AI ethics, regulation, jobs, uh, impact to society, benefits across healthcare and education, other basic elements and also fears of, of what the impact and other implications are. So in no way, you know, while it might not be driving the news cycle, and, to be, and let's be real, we're entering uh, and we're in an election year, so that's going to take a lot of it. And, yes, there are AIs coming into the fold with that. I think um, even today I saw something that people are cloning uh, Biden's voice. And so, you know, we have concerns around how do we defend against, you know, uh, negligence, you know, bad uses of AI. But all these things are real, they're now, and every organization and government around the globe is figuring out how to implement and use AI ethically, smartly, and with most impact for their bottom line, their people, and society. There's a lot.
1: Zeno, from an investment perspective, even though perhaps this – topic of AI isn't quite as buzzy as I, I mentioned before, as it was earlier this year, there's clearly a lot of investor attention around this. And I'm curious, as you look at valuations in the space right now, you know, think about some of the most important companies involved with artificial intelligence, companies like AMD and NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft. H- how are you thinking about their valuations right right now? Because my senses. Um, the overall sentiment is that valuations are stretched r- right now. Do, okay. do you agree with that, or how are, you, how are you looking at that?
2: You certainly see some companies that are trading at higher valuations on both a sales or not, you know, earnings valuation perspective, and then um, versus kind of other players that are maybe not these large cap or, or magnificent seven names. You know, Nvidia is at around twenty five times forward db sales, and D and Microsoft are. Kind of tracking similarly at, at 12, you know, around 12 times. Companies like Qualcomm, which are, you know, also getting involved in the AI game, both on edge devices and augmented reality um, and even laptops, uh, personal devices, not, not just in the cloud, but being able to run AI on devices, you know, it's trading at 4.6 times for EV sales. So you have quite a range. Um, you know, just from our perspective with the, the Think Artificial Intelligence Index, it's trading at around six point five times overall weighted versus uh, its all-time high of over ten times. So the overall ecosystem still actually hasn't caught up. It's really been a mega cap growth story over the past year, um, and I think that's kind of going to be a big talking point and area to watch is how that how that is impacted going forward. Um, you know, so so yes, I mean you you still overall still you know, AI is still a small sliver of overall ETF uh, influence. You know, yes, you're starting to get some more, but it's still considered kind of a, a tactical edge versus you know, a core holding versus the Q's, which is a very market cap weighted. So you still have lots of companies that have lots of exposure to AI that and, and will continue to as AI starts to develop and requires more more pieces like edge AI communications and the more and more we depend on AI, the more services and products that we'll have to require from a safety and regulatory and explainability endpoint. Um, these are going to grow a lot over the coming years, uh, but that's not necessarily reflected. Um, you know, these are profitable companies. They already have business use cases, but kind of this really incredible growth story hasn't even really been reflected into earnings yet. So well, that's something to continue as we enter this new earnings season you know, we're kind of watching for those elements to start trickling, not just in the obvious names that people are following, like NVIDIAs and Microsofts and AMDs um, that are very heavily held across the board. But these other companies, you know, I'll say a name like Pure Storage, um, that, you know, they're smaller cap, but that have great exposure to, um, you know, the co- these companies themselves as uh, customers, but also growth beyond them.
1: By the way, somewhat uh, related to this topic, there's a stat that I saw this morning that I, I have to share on the podcast, and you're probably already aware of this, but NVIDIA's weighting in the S&P 500 is now nearly equal to the entire energy sector, and there's wow. only three other uh, stocks that fit that criteria. Of course, Apple, Microsoft, and Google. I just thought that was uh, interesting, showing showing the run-up, obviously, in NVIDIA, but uh, you know, energy has struggled for, for quite a while. Um, If we look specifically at the ETF space, and you you may be aware of this, so a few weeks ago, your uh, colleague, Laura Krigger was on the podcast, and we we were talking about some of her uh, predictions for the upcoming year. She suggested that artificial intelligence ETFs might be the latest fad to flop. Those are her (laughs) words, not mine, and uh, not to to, to pit you against uh, Laura, but... I would love to get your thoughts on this, and I I think her point was that, look, there's no question AI is revolutionizing pretty much everything, but Mm -hmm. I I think that was also her concern with AI ETFs. Like, how do you actually capture this since it does impact everything? And she also noted that the company's benefiting from AI, and, and maybe this runs counter a little bit to what you were just speaking to, but... You know, she was saying, look, these are already the largest tech companies anyways. So investors yeah. already have exposure here. They don't need AI ETFs. How would you respond to that?
2: Yeah, I think I think this is very sound reasoning, based on historical and recent performance, that mega caps will continue to reign supreme. At some point, it's true that every leading company will be an AI company, just like all the leading companies today figured out how to use the Internet. And if you invested in the Internet at the dot-com peak, you were out of the game, but those were also companies that had great vision. They were way ahead of themselves from an infrastructure perspective, from a consumer adoption perspective. We didn't have fifty percent of consumers or, or people on the internet until two thousand and one. So how would you have VAM compete and be a global company to the scale that it could be? You know that company could have been today back then. So the same scenario holds true today. Is you've got lots of AI um, companies that are building products like GPTs. You also have companies that are making open source GPTs, which this is kind of a game changer. Now we're democratizing digital products and services and intelligence to a scale that you can run this on your local device, which disrupts the traditional flow of how products and services have worked for almost the entirety of society. So it's true, you know, you have to, you can be in multiple camps here and maybe you can call them camps. You know, um, do you think just big tech wins no matter what? Um, and if that scenario is true, what other companies win in that scenario? Because they don't do everything themselves. There's an ecosystem of products and services they also use, hardware, software, other elements there. Um, the other angle, and it could be parallel um, and happens simultaneously, is we get more open source edge AI devices that can run and do our own things. They can create their own apps, processes, visualizations on demand. It doesn't require these mega companies. What happens in that scenario? What are the companies that win in that in that game? Um, you know, I try to find and I spend time looking at companies that fit the narrative going into both of those. What overlap exists there? Uh, there's also going to be lots of M and A as these companies play. You've got big uh, financial organizations, energy companies. You know, energy is actually a big beneficiary. Um, you know, AI uses a lot of energy right now, and it's also helping. Uh, improve um, not just how we collect energy, but in distribute it and store it, but all of these different elements coming together. We've got advances in batteries and you know nuclear that are that are being driven by advances and capabilities of the raw power behind uh, the AI. So it's this very synergistic boost here. So yeah, I think there's a world where you know these these magnificent seventy fuel companies continue to reign supreme for some time. But I think there's a couple other you know companies and plays in there where you might actually see uh, less, you know, need for these companies. Um, And then it's not just regulatory where you see, you know, uh, impact on app stores and antitrust that reduces their top and bottom line and margins. Um, That's especially in the EU and China. The U.S. hasn't really ever had a heavy hand on them to that extent, not even since Microsoft and the Internet Explorer case back in the 90s. But, you know, this open source element, um, and we're starting to see companies that are being built off this uh, that can drive a lot of competition against these players. So I think that's a, a really underappreciated angle to the story that we've had where the obvious early winners are these big players and the companies that that sell services to them.
1: If if I were to distill that down and and going back to AI ETFs, you know, most investors, again, are going to have exposure to, um, the, the magnificent seven, right? If they're owning the S&P 500 or whatever. So is, is a takeaway there that if you're going to invest in AI ETFs, you should be looking for products that have minimal overlap there. And I guess along, you know, those lines, I know, obviously, Vetify, Has the Think Index, T H N Q, that's behind the, uh, powers the Robo Global Artificial Intelligence ETF. What does the overlap look like on that?
2: It's about 14%.
1: Okay. But but is that the key?
2: Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, about 14% with the MAG7. There's obviously MAGs from Roundhill, which is literally a MAG7 ETF. I don't really feel like I need to (laughs) dive into the the weighting there. Um, You know, the Qs, uh, Triple Q. 45% or so in the top 10 names, largely MAG-7. And then uh, another player, also from is chat, which uh, has 53% in their top 10 names. You know, a lot of, you know, concentration is MAG-7. Obviously, a lot of those players are in chat, you know, in generative AI. Um, I think a little broader, um, there's cybersecurity, there's networking, semiconductors, I think uh, we look at it more as like a body. There's brain, there's energy, there's senses and immune system and connectivity, and then there's actions like reasoning, movement. Um, and so, you know, these, these those elements echo what is needed for deployment of AI, and it's not just kind of what's happening today, but this broader ecosystem of what artific- artificial intelligence can mean across the physical and digital domains. Um, there's also AIQ, which, you know, top five holdings are NVIDIA, META, ServiceNow and IBM, uh, with 35% or so in the top 10 names. Very uh, market cap weighted.
1: Just a few minutes left here. You mentioned the physical and digital domains. And I I know we briefly touched on this last time you were on the podcast. But um, let's come back to this idea of artificial intelligence and robotics Mm -hmm. getting lumped together. Because I have noticed in the ETF space, there are a number of products that combine these two, right? And, And you had talked a little bit about why it is important to understand the differences here from an investment standpoint. So do you you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because I do think it's important for investors looking to allocate to these types of ETFs to to understand the drivers here, whether they're looking at a, you know, more of a, quote-unquote, pure play AI ETF or something that's also combining robotics.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, There is a big difference, and they significantly impact and use each other. Um, You know, chips wouldn't be in existence without extremely precise automation and robotics companies, but I like to break it down as simple as possible. AI is digital, robotics is physical, and yet there's some gray area there. Um, but you're right, a lot of AI ETFs that are bundled in AI are hybrid, and a lot of robotics ETFs are considered AI. A lot of people think you know the Robo Global index ETF, which was launched in twenty thirteen, They bundle that into AI, which I disagree with. It can benefit from AI. I think robotics is going to benefit greatly from generative AI, improving training, sensing controls, and computer vision elements, and reducing energy requirements and basically just uplift and upskill these robots to be working beyond just traditional cells and manufacturing and industrial elements. But, you know, some of the things we're focused on at large are autonomous vehicles and drones and other modalities such as that. We even see, you know, we've called out this year as being the year of the humanoid robot. Um, and we're actually starting to see humanoid robots with functioning hands and mobility that are being tested in warehouses across the globe. That's in the U.S. with Amazon. You have China exploring this. It's one of their top goals actually in China is to build humanoid robots too, because there's a labor shortage for a lot of these key areas that have high churn, low labor demand. People don't want a lot of these jobs and so they're dangerous. And so there's, co- there's a lot of companies and components that go into that. So AI can help with the training elements, but on the physical side, you've got controllers and motion controllers and sensors and computer vision that are very hardware-based. And so that's why, you know, it's important to, to isolate, you know, physical as being creation and movement or digital as, you know, reasoning and analysis and these other elements. There's an overlap of sorts, uh, but there are very key differences. You know, take, for example, bots. Uh, 69% weighting in the top 10 names, with Nvidia at 17%, Intuitive Circle at 11, Abb at 8, and Keyence at about 7%. You know, Robo, um is about 18% in the top 10 or so names. So it's it's a bit more diversified, with uh, more you know weighting in the uh, mid and small cap companies like Azenta. Intuitive Circle is shared at number two. Companies like Teradyne Illumina, and uh, one of my favorite companies, Rockwell Automation. It was just at their uh, their investment analyst day uh, last last quarter.
1: Yeah, I mean, as always, it, uh, you know, we say this all the time on the podcast. It gets back to understanding exactly what you own. You have to look under the hood, understand the uh, the specific companies uh, there. By the way, the uh, humanoid robots. Every time I see one of those videos out on uh, Twitter X, it scares the living daylights out of me. It's like a uh, something from the Terminator. <laughs> do,
2: you, know. do you ever watch uh, iRobot?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah.
2: yeah, no, but there's there's a lot of positive elements there. Yes, what, what? Uh, it's true that the set, you know, the control elements, and and th- those are very important elements that will not we will not see broad adoption without safe controls sure. of these types of modalities and robots. No, so right. that that's going to be one of the biggest regulatory discussing of our time. You know, you've got people that need help that don't want to do chores at home, and if somebody could do that, everyone, you know, a lot of people's quality of life will be enhanced. Um, I like to look at it as um, quality of life for you know hour worked or whatever metric you want to do. Um, you know, that's not not exactly reflected in traditional metrics like GDP or even per capita GDP. But um, you know, those are those are elements that that we take seriously from from our angle. It's just areas that improve, and, and those, are, those are companies that, that end up winning in the long term.
1: Yeah, as long as my uh, lawn-mowing robot doesn't turn on me uh, at some point. <laughs> Zeno, <laughs> we're going to have uh, to leave it there. Great having you back on the podcast. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation. Thank you for joining me.
2: Really fun to be back with you. Thanks again.
1: That was Zeno Mercer, Senior Research Analyst at Vetify.
0: Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at ExchangeETF.com.
1: My next guest is Jim Bianco, president and index manager at Bianco Research Advisors and also president of Bianco Research. They manage the index behind the recently launched Wisdom Tree Bianco Total Return Fund, ticker symbol WTBN. That launched in December. And Jim is now on the line with me from Chicago. Jim, great to uh, connect and welcome to the podcast.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation.
1: All right. So this uh, index behind WTBN is the Bianco Research Fixed Income Total Return Index. And we're certainly going to uh, get into the mechanics of that. But I'm just curious, how did this all come together with uh, wisdom?
3: We've been talking off and on for a couple of years about doing. And then finally, in 2022, we made a commitment that we should move forward with this project. And we did. And... As you pointed out, it it finally came to fruition last month.
1: All right, so with the uh, index, just explain the uh, problem you're attempting to uh, solve here. Like, as you look around at some of the other broader fixed income indices and ETFs in the marketplace, what did you see as the uh, shortcomings or potential areas of opportunity?
3: Yeah, um, most people, when you talk about beating a passive index, think S&P 500, think most people cannot do that because historically the S&P 500 is one of the better-performing equity in, uh, uh, equity indexes, and that's true. But in fixed-income land, it's not so much true. The index, a passive index, will usually come in around the middle of the pack, around the 50th percentile or so. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but the basic reason people understand the most is that equity, your all-stars tend to be your biggest weightings. And if you don't play those, you underperform. In fixed income, it tends to be your problem children that your biggest weightings, your overlevered companies or your countries that have borrowed too much debt. And if you avoid them, you can beat the index. So as I looked at the fixed income market in 22, and especially in 23 when we were doing this project, and saying that interest rates were returning, there was an opportunity to manage – and indexes yield, and to manage the index to not only capture that yield that it's giving you, because there's a yield again, but also to do better than just a passive index, um, knowing that at least historically the index was in the 50th percentile, not in the 90th like it was with equities. So that's what the construction of the Bianco Total Return Index is about, is we're trying to say there's a yield in bonds, we want to grab that, and then we want to say that with some proper management techniques, we could enhance that yield by avoiding downturns in the market and maybe capturing some upturns with the cyclical moves in, in the bond market, understanding that in fixed income, it's a much different game than it is in equities.
1: So talk a bit more about how exactly you're doing that. If, if we look at the index composition, what exactly is going on underneath the uh, hood here?
3: So it's a broad, the Bianco Fixed Income Total Return Index, it's a long-only index in broad-based investment grade. So it's very similar to the broad-based investment grade indexes that you would see in fixed-income land. And that's our benchmark. Um, we've identified five what you would prefer to or I would refer to as factors that um, lead to the outperformance of an index. Duration, whether or not you're long your index on duration or short-year index, which is are you more or less sensitive to the movements of interest rates, the shape, uh, how you own that duration, or the shape of the yield curve. Is your duration owned between the five and the seven-year maturities, or is it owned between the two and the 30-year maturities, being one being bulleted, the other being barbelled? Bulleted would be because you think the yield curve is going to steepen or barbell means it's going to flatten. Credit, are you overweight or underweight? Credit would be the third factor. Structure or volatility, which would be more people understand as mortgage securities. Are you overweight or underweight? Structure or volatility? And then we have a, a final um, factor that we've added, and that is a conviction or an other factor to high-yield, preferreds, municipals, inv- um, international, uh, and the like, as to whether or not you want to uh, uh, have some kind of conviction about it which in our index is only limited to a maximum of 20% of the overall index. So we we reweight these five factors every month to try and position ourselves to outperform, say, a passive broad-based investment-grade index.
1: If I look at the current top, constituents in the index. And, and and actually, let me just go through these. I think this might be helpful for listeners, uh, if, if you'll bear with me. So top holding is the iShares MBS ETF at 21%. That's followed, uh, followed by the iShares zero uh, to five-year tips bond ETF at 20%. And then, uh, just quickly here: Vanguard Long Term Corporate Bond ETF, Wisdom Tree Floating Rate Treasury Fund, Vanguard Short Term Corporate Bond uh, ETF, Vanguard Intermediate Term Corporate Bond ETF, Schwab Long Term U.S. Treasury ETF, Schwab Short Term U.S. Treasury ETF, iShares Seven to Ten Year Treasury Bond ETF, iShares Triple B Rated Corporate Bond ETF, and then the iShares Three to Seven Year Treasury Bond ETF. Um, can you just talk about that that positioning? Overall, what, what should be some of the key takeaways if an advisor or an investor is looking at those holdings? And, and perhaps a good way to do this would be to compare to something like the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, just, just at a high level.
3: <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, first of all, you'll notice from that description that we own other fixed income ETFs. The reason we do that is because the fixed income market, like the equity market, has now been sliced and diced into over 500 different um, index-based fixed-income ETFs. So there's pretty much a flavor for anything you would want in the index land in bonds, like there is in stocks. So we could have put together, and we do have access to a cash market desk, if you will. We could have bought hundreds of mortgage securities. We could have bought MBB, which is what we wound up doing, to pretty much accomplish the same thing. So the first thing is, we use other ETFs. That makes it very transparent. That makes it very liquid. Within the fixed income blend, as I mentioned, with our factors, you'll hear a lot of our factors in there: corporate bond ETFs, mortgage ETFs, treasury ETFs. You heard long-term, intermediate, short-term. Whether or not we're structuring along the curve, how we we structure all of these securities together, um, you, you know, to have an average duration. And the other thing about fixed-income ETFs, the analytics have gotten so good in the last couple of years that while you might look at our portfolio and see 11 or 12 fixed-income ETFs, we can actually track it as 2,865 individual securities, looking at all of those securities, what are their average weightings versus various metrics, and compare it to a broad-based index that might have, like you mentioned, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index that might have twelve or 13,000 securities in it, and to see how we stack up relative on our weightings on that. So we look at it as both not only a handful of ETFs, but an aggregation of thousands of fixed-income securities purposely built to try and uh, uh, achieve an objective that we're, we're hoping to accomplish.
1: Going back to your earlier point on the uh, potential shortcomings of traditional passive indices in the in the fixed income arena. Just out of curiosity, why not go pure active management here? Because as I'm sure you're aware, that's been a, uh, a, a huge growth area within the ETF space. There's been a lot of buzz around uh, active. And to, to what you were saying, I think some investors would, would certainly make the case that active management is much more effective in, in the fixed income arena than in the equity market. So, so why not just serve as the uh, active portfolio manager on this ETF?
3: You know, that was a consideration. And when we decided to look at the possibilities that we could do, we thought that basically laying it out as an index uh, was a better option for us in the way that we try to explain it, in the way that we try to move it. We, uh, when I was explaining to the Wisdom Tree people how I'd go about doing this, it kind of became obvious that what I was describing was this, you know, discretionarily indexed approach. So it kind of evolved more that that seemed to be the natural way to, way to how we're going to do it. But you're right, we're not purely an active fixed income ETF. WTBN is a tracker for my index But my index is discretionarily managed I use the word discretionarily Because it's not mechanical It's not a math equation Like you're usually used to With a passive index It's more of an active index you want an example I like to think of Of how we do this The S&P 500 is, an, is a committee Driven discretionary index The committee gets together And decides which stocks Are we going to take out of the index Which stocks are we are going to put in the index Managed by human beings well, when we look at our factors, it's managed by my investment team. Uh, we we human beings make these decisions in much the same way.
1: Jim, just taking a uh, step back, I think a number of our listeners will certainly be familiar with you and, and your research. I've been tracking your research for years now. I feel like you produce some of the best commentary and charts out there. But I'd love to have you just tell listeners a little more about yourself and, Why you do believe you and and your firm can add value in the fixed income uh, indexing space?
3: Yeah, so um, I've been doing this in the fixed income market and in the macro space for over 30 years. Bianco Research, my research firm, was founded in April of 1998, so we're coming up on our 26th anniversary. And I actually had 10 years before that, before I spun Bianco Research off into its um, own entity. I have been long a fixture since the 90s um, in the fixed income market as a commentator, as, an, as somebody who has been on the research-selling side of the business for many years on the institutional side. I had gotten a lot of interest from retail investors and from wealth managers about accessing our institutional type of research a little bit more, and I thought a better way for me to provide that to that crowd was not just in the newsletter format, but was this index, the explanation of the index, why we have certain weightings, and an opportunity with a tracker ETF to invest directly, uh, um, you know, uh, into our index and to see, you know, to uh, move along with our index to make it very similar. So, you know, um, I have had very strong views over the last number of years been very active on social media when it comes to talking about macro and fixed income. I think that's where a lot of people are most familiar with me, and hopefully they'll see this as kind of the natural extension of the business that I've been in for a couple of decades now.
1: All right, so in terms of talking macro and fixed income, we have a few minutes left here with our remaining time. I- I'd love to just discuss the fixed income markets more broadly. And I I think the way that I would set this up, Jim, is, you know, look, if we go back to 2022, obviously that was one of the worst years in history for broad bonds. Uh, Last year was mixed, I would say. I I think rates probably ran a little bit uh, higher than perhaps some investors were expecting, at least in the first two-thirds of the year. And then they did come back in a little. Uh, and, And then, you know, here more recently, we are again seeing, I would say, some bias to the upside with rates. Where's your head at on interest rates and taking on duration risk in a portfolio right now? I think that's really the biggest challenge for a lot of uh, investors and advisors, you know, should they take on that duration risk?
3: It is. That is the biggest risk. Um, and, you know, to be to be blunt about it, and I've been very vocal on my views, I think that the bull market in bonds ended in 2020, and we're in a period of higher interest rates, or if you want to call it a bear market, yes. Now, why would I buy a long-only index if we were in a period of a bear market? Because in 2024, two things have happened. One, the big sell-off, as you mentioned, from 2022, from August 2020 to October 2023 was the worst sell-off in the bond market from a total return perspective, price change plus coupon, since the Civil War. You have to, that was a 160-year uh, a black swan event, how bad that was. Where we left after that, we're finally left with a yield. The yield on broad-based bond indices now is around 4.7%, where it was around under 1% three years earlier. That yield can be managed properly to hold that 4.7 as much as you can, protect yourself from falling prices, and that would be to be short duration. Uh, so, the management of a of a bond portfolio, I think, has shifted in the last year or two to be something similar to the way we would do it pre two thousand nine, pre QE, when there was a yield and when total return was an idea of there's a yield, let's grab that yield, let's now move our our convictions or our or our factors around that yield to try and protect that yield, maybe augment that yield by having certain moves. But you're right, 2022 and into almost the end of October of 23 was a horrible time for the bond market but with that sell-off. But when it was over, it left us with a yield. And that's what I think most bond investors are aware of. And that's why you've seen, even during that sell-off into 23, flows continuing into ETFs. People saw that there was a real... Uh, a, a, a substantial yield, that can, not to confuse it with real yield, uh, and that they wanted that yield, but they also were risking price losses along the way, and that's what we're trying to say is we can hopefully manage those price losses. Plus, I would also throw in we are in an inverted yield curve in the world, so this means that if you are short duration, you don't give up yield. If I move to become less sensitive to the movement of interest rates, which is what short duration means, so that prices don't fall as much when yields go up, I don't have to move down the yield curve spectrum if we had a normally shaped yield curve where long-term rates were higher than short-term rates. I could still get that same yield and, um, and be less sensitive to the movements of rates. And that's why I think that this index factor approach Is the right approach for this type of environment now, especially after the sell-off we saw from 2020 to 2023?
1: Just about two minutes left here. What about on the credit side? Because to to your point with where yields are at now, you may have some investors saying, hey, look, I'm going to try to enhance that yield by taking on some credit risk. And if I look at credit spreads right now, they are below the historical median. Nothing appears too alarming, but... Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, certainly some investors are concerned about the economy and a potential recession. So ju- just high level, what's your view on uh, credit risk right now?
3: Credit, you know, you're weighting in a bond portfolio in credit is your equity weighting. If you're overweighted your benchmark, to use an example like we approach it, you're basically making the same type of outlook that you would for rising stock prices. If you're underweight credit, you would be making the same bet that you would be if you were defensive in stocks. Um, our structure right now, I uh, should say, we're about 99 percent uh, credit weighting relative to our benchmark. In other words, it's a fancy way for me to say we're pretty neutral right now when it comes to credit. Um, we're, you know, reevaluating that credit issue with, right now in wake of. Stocks moving up as much as they have over the last month or so to try and figure out where we want to uh, change it. We haven't made a decision yet, but we're around ninety nine percent. So credit, I think, is your stock weighting. If you are moving into credit and saying I want to grab extra yield through credit, then you also should be staring at the S and P, saying I think that's going to keep going up, even though it is currently at an all time high right now. Not saying that's wrong. I'm saying but. Those things tend to move together, and you have to – and it really shouldn't be separating them.
1: Well, Jim, with that, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, really enjoyed connecting. Uh, We'll certainly have to do this again. Best of luck to you on the uh, index and and the ETF. Uh, Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. That was Jim Bianco, President and Index Manager at Bianco Research Advisors and also President of Bianco Research.
2: Entrepreneur Shares was one of the first thematic investment strategies, and we were the very first in entrepreneurship, innovation, and disruption. We have over 30 years of academic research that we developed at Bathson College, the number one school in entrepreneurship. And from this, we developed a proprietary entrepreneur factor, which demonstrates how investors can outperform peer benchmarks over time. Our model works best during declining interest rate environments such as now, and we have two ETFs investors can follow – One is ENTR, which is US Large Caps, and one ETF is ERSX, which focuses on non US small caps.
1: guest this week, certainly not least, is Seth Rosenthal, Chief Investment Officer at Academy Asset Management, who is behind the Academy Veteran Impact ETF. The ticker symbol is VETZ, Vets. This is their uh, first ETF. It launched in August of last year, already over $50 million in uh, assets, and Seth is now joining me from Chicago. Seth, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Nate. Appreciate you having me.
1: All right, so Academy Asset Management and Vets, um, I think have a fantastic backstory, and so I'd love to start there. Uh, I know this goes back to two Navy officers founding Academy Securities in uh, 2009. Take us from there and, and how that ultimately led to the ETF.
4: Yeah, so uh, Academy Asset Management is a uh, service-disabled, veteran known asset manager, and we're really focused in on authenticity and capability. We were launched on the heels of the success of our investment banking and broker broker dealer sister company, Academy Securities, who, uh, you know, back in 2019, you know, partnered with J.P. Morgan to establish a Academy share class uh, of a money market mutual fund, and you know, as as we were, you know, in discussions around you know the the growth plans around that the target was thought, well, if we can get it to $2 billion, it would be a home run. Well, uh, that grew to actually $16 billion, and it really led our CEO, Chance Mims, to, to look at how do we do this uh, and be more impactful to our mission and, and manage in-house. As you think about uh, Academy, uh, you know, we think about things in two ways. One, you know, one is our authenticity. And, you know, the second is our capability. So on the authenticity side, you know, our mission is to mentor, hire, and train veterans. We, we pair Wall Street veterans to coach and mentor military veterans until they can build the skills uh, to be successful in Wall Street. We, we target a 50% uh, veteran staffing level. Uh, and, you know, Nate, I would just say, you know, transitioning out of the military can be really difficult. Uh, every year we have about 250,000 service members transitioning out, um, but there really are limited opportunities for veterans, especially in industries that are not necessarily connected with the government. So um, huge challenge uh, with both veteran unemployment and underemployment. And, and you know, really a lot of that stems from, uh, you know, the, these veterans, they're, they're used to the, the team environment, right? So when they go into an interview process, you know, they're talking about the team, but they're not really talking about, you know, what, what I did. Um, but at Academy, you know, we think that veterans have a, a, a unique skill set that translates really well to asset management. So, you know, thinking about, you know, being able to work well under pressure, making decisions under duress with imperfect information, having that level of attention to detail because you can't be wrong. Um, you know, integrity, you know, working as a team, those are all things that we think translate really well uh, into this business. And then, you know, just transitioning over to the capability side, um, you know, we have an investment team that has decades of experience in, in managing large pools of fixed-income assets uh, that, that have come from, you know, well-respected institutions. And, you know, we have a geopolitical intelligence group, which is made up of 18 retired admirals and generals with real-world subject matter expertise uh, that, you know, have their finger on the pulse of the geostrategic landscape. And, you know, this unique insight actually helps us shape our investment thesis. I'm sure we'll dig deeper, but that's that's a high-level summary.
1: No, it's a great overview. Um, okay, so the ETF, again, the veteran, I'm sorry, the Academy Veteran Impact ETF, this is actually a fixed-income ETF. It primarily holds mortgage-backed securities, though there's also a, a small allocation to SBA loans as well, small business loans. W- walk us through the CTF.
3: Sure.
4: So, um, you know, VETS is an, an actively managed strategy. Um, it invests in residential mortgage loans to Active duty service members as well as, uh, loans to veteran-owned small businesses. It's really allowing, uh, investors to gain exposure to, you know, agency-backed, mortgage-backed, uh, agency mortgage, uh, and asset-backed securities. It's benchmarked against the Bloomberg MBS index. And, uh, you know, from a credit, you know, everything has the, either the implicit or explicit, uh, support of the U.S. government. But at the same time, you know, we're impacting uh, veterans and delivering uh, market-based returns. And we think this is unique because, uh, you know, most uh, impact strategies require, you know, some type of market concession, but VETS does not. I, I would say, uh, you know, the, we think about the impact here in three ways. Um, you know, first is the the lending that we're doing, um, you know, in terms of as this grows, you know, we'll we increase demand for uh, and, and lower the end cost to borrowers. You know, just a couple things for you to think about. You know, according to the SBA, uh, veterans own about two two million small businesses and employ five and a half million dollars. Uh, f- or sorry, five and a half million people, and and that has a huge impact on on the economy. And you know, another thing is, you know, Syracuse University has done some studies around transitioning veterans. About 25% of those transitioning veterans actually want to start their own business, but access to capital is the biggest challenge. So, you know, those are the types of things that we're looking to help out with. And then, you know, just other ways that we're impacting, we talked about our mission at Academy. As we grow, as this continues to grow in AUM, uh, we will continue on our mission to mentor higher and train more veterans to support this initiative in the front, middle, and back office. And then the third component is we've, uh, committed to, Academy is committed to donate a portion of the management fee uh, to veteran and military-related charities, and, you know, we announced last November that we've partnered with the Bob Woodruff Foundation to help uh, facilitate that.
1: Going back to the um, ETF holdings itself, Seth, what, what percentage of the underlying loans in the ETF are actually VA loans?
4: Roughly uh, about 90, 93% at the current state. And, and about 7% is in the small
1: business. Okay. And, and just out of curiosity, so when you go to purchase those securities, how, how do you know they're actually VA related?
4: Yeah, uh, good question. So um, I'll just bifurcate the two. So on the residential side, in order to qualify for a, a VA loan, um, you know, the veteran or the active duty service member must show proof of service. So um, you, you don't necessarily. You aren't a VA. It's not a VA loan or a VA approved loan unless you prove that, and and then we um, at Academy are able to see the percentage of VA loans in a particular Ginny Mae pool uh, through Bloomberg and there's some other sources that we use. On the on the small business side, uh, you know there's origin. You know there's the originators provide that loan level information. Uh, on each individual business, and they were are able to identify whether it's a you know veteran-owned business, a minority-owned business, uh, and and on down the line. So we're able to see the transparency there uh, for those small business loans. It's
1: such a uh, unique ETF. Uh, I I love everything about this here, especially coming from a, a military family. Um, it, just a few minutes left on the investment side and, and the investment thesis. It, it was interesting. I was uh, visiting earlier with another guest on on interest rates and. And taking on duration risk. Do you have any strong views directionally on rates? And I I guess along with that, do you want to briefly explain how interest rates typically impact uh, areas like mortgage-backed securities? Sure. So,
4: you know, our view is that we think rates, you know, will trade in the know in, in a bit of a range over the over the near term um, there's a few countervailing factors you know slower growth on the horizon lower inflation um, but you know there's a potential to you know offset offset um, you know for elevated term premiums you know as we really uh, get our arms around some of these uh, deficit and, and supply concerns so we think there's some countervailing factors you know just to unpack the other portion uh, the other question around you know how it impacts how how prices impact or performance uh, on on MBS, so they have a duration component. Uh, you know, Vets has a duration of about, uh, call it six. And you know, so if rates, uh, you know, were to fall, all things considered, you know, prices would rise. Uh, the 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 risk here with mortgage backed securities is that you know, there's uh, lower rates could cause prepayment. Mm-hmm. Now, what we see is, you know, we see mitigating factors. Uh, here in that, you know, the average coupon that we hold is below 4%. So, you know, the portfolio has, you know, even if rates were to fall, you know, a few hundred basis points, there's about 200 basis points of what we call prepayment protection before there's uh, refinancing comes into play. So, um, and we're also, you know, looking to mitigate this by selecting pools that have you know, implicit uh, prepayment protection, you know, looking at, you know, loan size and geography and some other things. Um, you know, for those that are thinking uh, about, you know, where we're headed towards a recession, um, you know, when you look at history, uh, MBS has typically outperformed credit. And then I guess, there's, you know, one other thing I would say is, um, you know, MBS, uh, like a lot of other uh, spread assets, had a nice run, uh, especially in the last couple months of uh, 2023. I, I still think there's a little bit of room to run here from, from our perspective um, and value to be extracted. You know, banks were you know our traditional buyers of, of mortgage backed securities. They've they stepped away. Um, you know you know all rewind all the way back to last March. Um, you know, given all the, the issues around uh, uh, mark to markets on their on their portfolios. Uh, but you know, we think as, as interest rates settle in here, um, you know, they could come back into play, and that could help um, help the demand on the uh, on the mortgage back front.
1: Seth, um, before I let you go, just moving forward, should we expect additional ETF launches from Academy? You know, it's interesting because you mentioned the geopolitical intelligence group uh, earlier, which I, I find. Fascinating. You mentioned these 18 former admirals, generals and senior government officials. Might they be able to add value in uh, in other areas of the uh, market?
4: Well, uh, you know, just just to uh, you know, I'm I'm the gig as we call them the geopolitical intelligence group. I mean, there's no shortage of geopolitics uh, issues these days. I mean, you know, they I told you I mentioned that they shape our investment thesis and, you know, thinking about I I give you a story. Back in 2022, when, you know, Russia was invading or was, you know, lining up tanks on the border of Ukraine, um, you know, while the market was debating whether or not, you know, uh, Russia was going to, you know, Putin was going to invade, the, the you know, our folks were saying that's a done deal. And we started thinking about, you know, the second order effects. And so we started talking about uh, Commodity markets and and the impact to you know energy sanctions and supply chains. So um, you know that actually helped us see uh, the inflationary impacts uh, that the market didn't account for. We were able to position client portfolios appropriately. So um, you know it's it's definitely something that's that's on our radar i will say that we are laser focused on vets at the moment, but you know this unique insight that we think um are you know we deliver that helps shape our investment thesis we're able to deliver for our clients and our clients' clients um is something that we're we're definitely uh in under consideration in terms of you know leveraging you know potentially launching something that would leverage this geopolitical uh expertise and unique insight.
1: Well, Seth, really enjoyed hearing the uh, backstory on Academy. Again, I, I love everything that you're doing for military uh, veterans. Best of luck to you uh, w- with vets moving forward. And uh, thank you for joining me.
4: Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it.
1: That was Seth Rosenthal, Chief Investment Officer at Academy Asset Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematic and Active Equity ETFs at BlackRock. And yes, we will be discussing the iShares Bitcoin ETF. Uh, We'll also talk key themes Jay is watching in uh, 2024. And then Tom Hancock, Portfolio Manager at GMO, will spotlight the GMO U.S. Quality ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.